Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kao and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter, and with me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Hey, Cynthia. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, dude. I have been trying to work out and like using everything I can do at home. Yeah. And I hope it's working, but my body's telling me that I'm uh, punishing it a little too hard. <laughs> we, we we ordered a Peloton. I can't wait. To, and that's not a, a sponsor or anything like that. But uh, I cannot wait to get it because I'm with you. The COVID-19 is the pounds that I've been put on during this pandemic. So, uh, but exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, if you are all new to the podcast, welcome. We're excited you're here. Every week we get to talk to these amazing founders and they just happen to have one extra thing on their resume that's service to our country. And this week we're really excited because we have Drew Bartquitz. He's the founder and CEO of Patriots. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Um, I'm really excited because you've got a really cool, diverse background in tech and all these other things that you've done. But before we get to all of that, let's tell the story of Drew. Let's back up the tape. What drew you to go into the military? And you you went to West Point, so that's, that's pretty prestigious. How did you decide that's where you wanted to go? Uh, you know, I grew up in the Northwest Hills of Connecticut, and uh, West Point was always within you know, proximity a couple hours away. And I had really known very little about it until my older brother uh, attended there. And when I saw him in Cadet Gray, I gave it a shot myself. And, uh, you know, that was uh, entering West Point uh, in 85. In fact, uh, I didn't get in right away. I had to have a year of uh, resilience building on my own in terms of the West Point prep school. Uh, I was, uh, really one of those candidates who was coming up short of the bar for whatever reason. And at the time it was a great disappointment, but I can tell you going to have to improve myself, improve my skills to even get into West Point was probably the best year of my life. It, It really told me not to give up. That's awesome. And, and when you're, when you're deciding on going to West Point, there's a sponsor process, right? You have to get sponsored by a a congressman or, or, or Senator who ended up sponsoring you. Yeah. Nancy Johnson, who was a representative of the Northwest uh, Connecticut district there, district six, I believe. And uh, she, you know, was, was the one who really gave me the opportunity to receive that nomination. Uh, It's something that you don't take lightly. And, and then once you're in West Point, there is no reverse gear. It's it's only forward. And uh, I always say it's a great place to be from, but I'd be dishonest to say that I enjoyed every day there. It was it was not a pleasant experience in the late 80s all the time, but I'm certainly pleased I made it through and, and it's a great place to call home. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely. definitely sounds like you learned a lot just prepping. And, you know, I think a lot of people might have dropped out in that year trying to make all of these demands uh, before you got in. Yeah, you know, the attrition at the time, you know, roughly, you know, 20, 25% of the entering class will will drop out. And um, it, it certainly is uh, 
a personal journey to make it through. Uh, I had a really deep foundation in, in faith, but I also had, I think, uh, the hope that the the pain was going to be worth uh, some type of outcome. And I later got stationed in northern Italy with the 82nd Airborne. So uh, it, it turned out from a military service point of view to be a great experience uh, after West Point, too. Wow. When, when you got to West Point, what do you think surprised you about that experience? Do you think anything, I mean, you had your, your older brother had gone through this, but what, what about it surprised you? Um, you know, I learned there that structure early lets you be creative later. And I know that sounds a little odd, but, um, you know, the, the, the craft of creativity uh, is sometimes associated with kind of freewheeling, loosey-goosey, let's see where the road takes us. But in fact, creativity is a really disciplined process. And and I studied aerospace engineering and figured out how to really solve problems. Um, and I think really the structure of the, the routine at West Point, the structure of my studies in terms of aerospace engineering, it really forced me to become a good thinker and be a sustained thinker. And I think in the present day with the software companies that I'm involved with, it's that sustained thinking in that structure early at West Point that helps me be creative today. Now, 30 years later, which is kind of hard to believe. Yeah. When you, when you finished West Point, what did you end up doing? Uh, so I graduated and had the uh, opportunity to serve in the field artillery. I was a light artilleryman and, um, had the opportunity to serve in Northern Italy. So I went to Vicenza, Italy with the 82nd Airborne. Uh, it was in an airborne battalion combat team. And, uh, you know, admittedly, Josh, Cynthia, I was uh, deathly afraid of heights, uh, even having vertigo, uh, believe it or not. So joining a, a paratrooper battalion uh, in Northern Europe seemed nonsensical. But, uh, you know, I, I wanted so badly to live in Italy, I, I figured if I could learn to jump out of an aircraft, it would make it all worthwhile. And I uh, did so and served there from 89 to uh, the summer of 92 and um, really uh, learned a lot more about the world. Of course, uh, you learn on one hand of life, the, the discipline of West Point, and then you're thrown into a beautiful country like Italy and you see the other side of the spectrum, uh, the sensuality of life, the the beauty of the moment of being present. I think the Italians are wonderful at being present. So I, I think for being stationed in Italy, I learned a lot about myself there. And I learned very different things, obviously, in Italy than I would have at, at West Point. Yeah. Hey, you, know, you said something that I definitely connected with your fear of heights, because there's a very little known secret of mine that that is why I chose the Air Force over all the other branches <laughs> is I had a an extreme fear of heights and I got over it pretty quickly <laughs> with yeah. doing uh, embeds <laughs> and having to go on all of these um, red flag yeah. exercises and. You know, it definitely warmed me up and prepared me for something that I, I, I knew I needed to get over, but I'm the type of person to get over something or to, you know, to learn, you just have to throw me in the deep end. That's right. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, Cynthia, from uh, uh, Picasso is, I learn by doing that, which I cannot do. Yep. And I, that's a quote, I think, that helps a lot of us just just do what needs to be done and, and then, you know, get over yourself later. So how long did you spend in the Army altogether? So I was in uh, 
Italy uh, for three and a half years. And I was in the Gulf War in 91. Our, our unit flew out of Italy into a staging base in uh, Portugal and from Portugal over to Turkey. So we spent some time staging for the Gulf War in uh, eastern Turkey at Salopi Air Base. Uh, and there we were, you know, uh, uh, moving, you know, across the uh, air, across the uh, Syrian border, uh, parachuting into the area of Dohuk uh, in Iraq was the northern part of the country. So uh, we we were part of that conflict. We had the opportunity to, I call it the opportunity. I didn't see it as an opportunity at the time, but we we were asked to stay uh, longer to help set up a protective zone for the Kurds mm -hmm. to return back from Turkey and northern Iraq. So um, about eight months in the theater uh, of the Gulf. And again, another life experience and um, happy to have made it through that in good form and uh, left the service in the summer of 92 when I got accepted to grad school and went to grad school uh, for an MBA. Oh, wow. So that what was, an experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's interesting because a lot of folks that we have on this show, Cynthia, they're not really sure what prompted the, the transition out. Some is there. It's a different mindset, but it sounded like you were really deliberate about why you wanted to get out and what you already had, what your next step was going to be. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, Josh, I had applied to uh, the Yale School of Management because I was, again, I was originally from Connecticut. And after uh, some time in Europe, I was, you know, interested in being back a little bit around family again and applied to Yale. I, and when I got accepted, I remember I had to, I had to go three times to my battalion commander at the time, uh, Colonel uh, John Abizade, who he later became a four-star general, just an exceptional human being. But I had to go to him three times to sign my papers to uh, to let me out of the army. Uh, he was a big uh, mentor to me. He also, you know, really uh, envisioned a, a long career for me in the military. But my heart wasn't was it into that as a career. I loved serving. Um, but uh, by the summer of uh, really, uh, let's see, I think August, uh, early August '92, I was boarding a plane. Uh, landed at Newark Airport, outstationed at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And two days later, I was uh, sitting in a seat at Yale School of Management, um, probably the guy with shortest hair at the time <laughs> in that class. But it was quite a quite a move to go from a, a, a kind of a real air parachute special force type unit with uh, a really high charging colonel like General Abizade and then just a few days later, be sitting in an Ivy League classroom uh, pontificating about the state of business and, and public policy. So anyway, it's quite a quite a dramatic shift in just a few days, but um, it was a good one for me. And I've, I've tried to make the most of it ever since. That's amazing. That's crazy. I can't even imagine going from one extreme to this sort of like different environment. Um, when you when you finished up at Yale, what what was the transition for you? What, what did you end up doing first when you got out? Yeah. Uh, my first job out of Yale was with uh, United Technologies. It was a tech company uh, out of uh, actually many places. It was a multi-billion dollar tech company. And I really, Josh, to be honest with you, I was so intrigued by uh, the job description. It was called the Leadership Associate Program. And it was to have me work at four different locations of the corporation around the world. So I, I had a little bit of, uh, um, 
let's just say a traveler interest and wanted to again work in different environments. So uh, I worked at United Technologies first out of their Miami office where I did business development in Central America. Uh, then uh, transferred over to Lyon, France, where I uh, worked in France for um, about nine, 12 months, and then uh, transferred over to Vienna, Austria, and did business development in Central Europe. And and then, you know, my mom and dad said, okay, it's time to come home again. And and I returned for United Technologies back to Connecticut, uh, where I spent another couple of years with them before I really caught the software bug in 99 and and got into the software industry where I've been ever since. What a cool transition. I mean, were there any adjustment issues that you had um, getting out of the service and then going, you know, to Yale and, you know, becoming like this high powered exec and being overseas? It sounds like you really liked it overseas, but at any point in time, did you have any trouble adjusting? You know, I think, uh, Cynthia, I'm in perpetual adjustment and I'm, I'm kind of looking for uh, those circumstances which uh, do require uh, agility and ask you to kind of rethink your previous assumptions. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a great question, and I would I would maybe just summarize it. If I looked at the zigzag nature of my career, which is zigzagging but still upper, you know, moving left to right, I'd say it it's just wanting to be adjusting all the time to something new, something solvable, and something different. And I think uh, that's just been the, my, the nature of my personality probably since you know, I graduated West Point. When you- yeah, I've noticed that too for myself. It's just like for me to grow and for me to be, like being stagnant, I think, is probably the greatest ask for somebody <laughs> um, to get me to commit to because I think especially in the software industry, technology is constantly changing and evolving and growing. And the personalities that adapt best to it are personalities that are willing to grow along with it. Yeah, th- that's right. Never be a, never be afraid to learn something new and certainly never, ever assume, you know, it all that's the death toll in software and, and, and any technology. And you can be made, uh, pretty, um, uh, what's the word, but you could be displaced very quickly with one idea thinking, you know, no one can touch it. And something around the corner comes, it comes at you from a flank you didn't see before. And that, that really is the nature of technology. So continual learning is, is something I think most people in the industry find you either like it or you hate it, but if you're in it, you have to do it. Yeah, no, definitely. When, when you were starting this out, this career, this new career in, in tech, at what point did you say, I, I want to do something on my own. I need to create something myself. Like what was that first foray into entrepreneurship? Yeah, I would say, uh, Josh, you know, it took me probably 15 years in the software industry to get the personal medal and maybe the conviction to do it on my own. Um, I realized, number one, there was a lot I had to learn. Uh, after uh, United Technologies, I, I worked with a software company called Broadvision for a few years that was a personalization technology. And from 99 to 02, it was, you know, at the beginning, it was this steep slope. We we were trading at ninety three dollars on the stock exchange after the dot com bust in in nine eleven. Those combined, 
you know, really three years after starting that company or being in that company, we traded from $93 down to a penny stock. And so the, you know, really the, the web 1.0 was, it was as Dickens wrote, uh, you know, a century before it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And that was really my experience with Broadvision because we were, we were the next Oracle of software companies and fate and circumstances kind of changed, you know, our future. And that's when uh, I joined salesforce.com, which was a small company at the time and went to uh, move to Madrid, Spain, where my wife is from. And I spent three and a half years running Southern Europe for salesforce.com, which which then became a, a big success if, if you know the software industry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what was that? What was that? I, so I have a not a similar story to yours, but I, I have a similar experience where I joined a small company and then it grew to a really large one. And for me, at least, and I was talking to a friend earlier today, I was like one of two veterans at the time at Twilio. So when I joined Twilio, oh, we were yeah. like 50 people and, and we were just, there was like two veterans. Talk a little bit about yeah. the culture at the time. And so now they have VetForce, they have all this like really cool things yeah. at Salesforce, right? But talk yeah. about the early stages of being like a veteran at something that was on a rocket ship. Yeah, it's a great question. Let me ask you, Josh, what, what years were you at Twilio? I got there in 2012 and I left in 2016. So right as they raised their B yeah. round is when I got there. Yeah, great company. At the time, I was working uh, for a company called Mashery, which was a, yep. which was an API software and a business partner of Twilio. So that's why I knew Twilio. And Twilio, yeah, just hit it out of the park, became tremendously successful. Uh, so yeah, neat, neat uh, connection there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, when I joined Salesforce, I was like, boy, this was 2000, this is January, 2002. And no one had heard of software as a service. No one heard even of cloud computing. And I went to like a frontier market of Spain, Italy, and Portugal, uh, where salesforce.com in Spanish is pronounced salesforce.com. And it, it, you know, just rolls off your tongue. You know, and the Spaniards were like, like, what are you talking about? Like, we've never heard of this company. So, I will say that um, I was probably one of n- maybe two or three of veterans at the time, and I was, and I know for sure I was the only veteran back in the European theater for a, a U.S. software company. Um, but you know, I was, I kind of went back to a little bit, you know, uh, agile operations mindset, and and really saw it as another mission in quotations, a different kind of mission not a, a lethal mission, but certainly one that had to do with business and uh, success. And it was the first six months were absolute hell. Uh, every Spaniard and Italian who said, we're going to sign, this looks good. I put it on my forecast and each time my forecast was wrong. And eventually Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce is like, Hey, you know, you, you're in, you're in the Mediterranean. You probably have to calibrate when when a, a Spaniard says we're going to do this, they don't mean they're going to do it next month. They're going to do it in six to 12 months. And I recalibrated all my pipeline. And the net of it is I learned a tremendous amount working for Mark Benioff and Salesforce.com. And, you know, we was there uh, during a really exciting lift to the company and uh, learned the power of SaaS, software as a service, which uh, now most of the the apps that we design and build and Patriots are all 
uh, monetizing through software as a service model that I learned at Salesforce. Tell me a little bit about um, transitioning for your, from your history with Salesforce and learning SaaS to what you do now with Patriots. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I would just say that the, the most difficult thing in software in 2000, and I would even go 2000 to 2010, the number one obstacle in software was money. You need a lot of money to start a software company and uh, barriers to entry were pretty high and you needed, you know, pretty significant infrastructure spend. And today it's really not about money is the obstacle, but it's about creative execution and creative execution go absolutely hand in hand. Uh, a lot of the things that we bring to market in uh, Patriots, they're standalone brands uh, you know, apps like Copify, which is a mental fitness app for young adults, uh, app like Diversity Pop, which is a DEI micro learning technology. Each time we put a new idea in the market, it's exceptionally creative, but it only has lift on execution. And I think that's probably, Cynthia, the biggest difference, uh, at least my lesson learned when in Salesforce, I learned how to execute and Salesforce had a lot of money in invest, you know, invested in the company to really scale big. Mm-hmm. Um, but in you know, 2021, you can start a tech company, you can start a new idea and a new venture for less than $20,000. What, what you do with it and how you create value on top of it is you know, very different than what it was to, in, in 2000. So uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's one of my biggest insights of salesforce.com then versus patriots today when yeah for sure when you started this company did you have like built-in customers or how did you find sort of your first customers and so talk through that process and the reason i'm asking is a lot of the audience members that we have in this podcast are entrepreneurs right they want to become entrepreneurs but they don't understand how to get from zero to say five customers from five to 10 and et cetera, et cetera. How did you, how did you know who your customer was going to be and how did you find them? Yeah, that's a a question, Josh, that I would say my first way of answering it is my first investors as shareholders were my first trust holders. And when they became trust holders and a lot of the investors who first bet on me and the idea, I'll talk about what the idea was. Um, as trust holders, you as a CEO realize failure is not an option. And so you can't kind of do the usual VC roulette where, okay, we tried this one binary idea. We blew through 5 million bucks. Sorry, that didn't work. And that's really the VC model. Uh, you know, the one in 10 hit, sh- hit rate, but if you hit one out of 10, you're in great shape. But the difference with uh, taking money as a veteran entrepreneur is I think um you have a sense of failure is not an option, but you also have a sense of trading on trust because you only got through the military through trust. You only uh, really learned how to overcome circumstances like you know the Gulf War through trust. So when you then are in the private sector and you get someone to invest, you know, even a thousand dollars in you, the duty to perform and not create a loss for them is, is exceptionally high. 
And um, so when we when we took in our first investment, we were not called Patriots at the time. Our first investment of 2013 was in our first app was called Letters, L-E-T-T-R-S. And if you go back in the web archives and you Google Letters, you'll see all this tremendous press about it because it was an idea that was really provocative to a lot of journalists. And that was to use messaging for making messages that matter, really a reincarnation or reimagination of letters. And the first uh, customers of that app were really our segment customers were mobile users with a brain, (laughs) meaning they wanted to go beyond a short message. They wanted to write something meant to last. And that really was the definition and still is today of the personal letter. So we, we frankly, uh, attracted customers by doing something different in mobile. And I don't know, Cynthia and Josh, do you guys remember an app called Yik Yak? Yeah. At the time, right? Yeah, yeah. The time. A while yeah. ago. Yeah, a while ago. Yeah. Uh, and Yik, Yik Yak was an anonymous messaging app, which really invited the worst in people's communication. And what happened was we were, we were a little bit of a tortoise and a hare. The hare, Yik Yak, raised 75 million bucks on a peak valuation of 400 million for disposable anonymous messaging. Now, guess what happens when you give teenagers the perception of of disposability and anonymity? They're going to really dish, stalk, threaten, and insult one another at high high volumes because, you know, guess what? They're teenagers and there's no consequences to write whatever they want. In Yik Yak, even though it raised so much money, it went out of business two and a half years later. If they exited for less than a million dollars after raising 75 million. So the reason I give that as a reference point, letters was really on the opposite track. We we kept raising very incremental money to always align investment with where we were on progress. Um, and to our benefit, we never got ahead of our skis. Um, and letters became a, a technology, and it was the first name of Patriots was called Letters. We acquired three patents that we had filed. We picked up a few significant trademarks like sign ID for biometric signatures. And and about three years ago, I changed, well, I evolved the model of the company to a veteran venture studio to make multiple apps and operate like really a movie studio where you put 10 movies in, in the marketplace as a movie studio, seven bomb, two do okay, but one's a blockbuster. And that's really the model of Patriot apps today, but specific to apps and SaaS. Let me ask you a little bit about, because I'm looking at your letters um, reviews and how it was selected for Forbes Top 25 Veteran Company, Best Google Play Award for Android in 2014. How did you remain true to the vision of creating an app that was user-friendly? And, you know, if you've ever heard me talk about my work on other episodes, I'm a UI UX designer, and I find a lot of people get into software and sometimes it's a hit or miss. You know, they create something that might might have been greatly developed, but it doesn't really sing to the users. How did you keep to that vision of creating something that users like and want to use? Yeah. Well, Cynthia, uh, thanks for that background too. I'm gonna we're gonna connect on LinkedIn because I have some things I may ask you uh, sure. from a UX UI point of view. But um, on letters, we we kind of really took a contrarian model of what was what was trending. So what was trending was really tweets, snaps, and yaks, right? Uh, short, voluminous, sometimes angry, sometimes tedious. And then 
letters was like this sane, thoughtful space where we created a natural filter on the app, which we later patented. And that was a filter. I'll ask you both the trivia question. What is the least, what is the thing that is most scarce in your lives, my lives, and is forever the case? What's the least scarce thing we, or the most scarce thing we have? Time. You got it. Thank you, Josh. And so what we did was we required a minimum gift of your time to create your letter before it would exist on the network. So if you didn't hit that threshold of one minute, your your message of, because if your message was F you, you suck, this sucks, blah, blah, right? Sorry, not a letter. Like go somewhere where it's noisy and trafficy and there's cacophony everywhere. You want to write a letter, you got to commit. And we may think a one minute minimum is not a big commitment, but to, you know, a a mobile young person, that minute seems like a pretty big threshold. But what it did was it became a natural, natural filter of quality and thought and authenticity on the network. So, uh, you know, we, we populate over 3 million letters from around the world, translated in 150 languages. We wrote a, we published a book with the author, Paolo Coelho of the alchemist who published a book of letters with us with, uh, poems inspired by Brazil poets, the Brazil Poet Society. So I would, you know, I call it Cynthia. It was like this offbeat, cool, hip place where people went who wanted to think about what they wrote. And if you create a place where people want to think about what they write, there's, I would say, a bigger market for that today than there was even when we had the app really populating, you know, from, from 2014 to 2017, I would say really letters was just in its, its peak years. And then really the last couple of years, behaviors changed. Mobile behaviors changed dramatically. It moved from word to video, mm-hmm. uh, a la TikTok, but also, you know, the high volume networks of short, uh, I won't call them meaningless, but often re- reflexive, reactive communications like a tweet or a snap have created a lot of agony for people, a lot of misery, but they haven't really improved the human condition. So we, we've we got a, a new release of letters that'll come out. Uh, in fact, in late May, it'll come out on Memorial Day that won't even be called letters, but I think it'll make both your head spins how beautiful it is that picks up all the modern things of today, but doesn't lose the essence of what letters was on the first version. Right. The convenience of digital with the value of communicating by handwritten message. And that's something I've, I've really tried to teach to my kids is one, the beauty of long form journalism. Um, and then two, being able to send your thoughts by writing it to somebody. It's so much more personal when you write a letter or send a card that's handwritten to a family member. Um, you know, and these communication skills, I feel, are kind of getting lost. So if there's a way to maybe digitize that or make it a little easier for um, the younger generation to pick up, that would be, you know, that that would be the goal is to make it a hybrid. Um, I, I love your stories and I wish we had so much. I think we could just do an hour and like lose track of time for sure. I want to find out what were the big lessons learned in your journey from, you know, getting out of West Point, transitioning um, into software, uh, being an entrepreneur. What are some things that you would try to pass on to people that are um, becoming entrepreneurs or are founders now? Yeah, I would say, Cynthia, that 
uh, probably the number one thing that I, that I stick to is that stamina is a strategy and stamina can really be in short supply in, in tech land, particularly early stage, you know, cause you know, entrepreneurs start and they don't realize that, you know, your launch is not like you're leaving Cape Canaveral in some rocket with propulsion launch is way more analogous to Apollo 13, and, you know, the last few days that they had to keep cobbling stuff together to reenter the atmosphere to even land, mm-hmm. you know, the Tom Hanks movie brought it to life. So, you know, if you have stamina to solve those problems as you're reentering, knowing that a year from now, you're going to have to reenter again, you better have a great team around you who also has that stamina and that problem solving. They go hand in hand um, because, you know, I think entrepreneurs sometimes lose sight that the launch is the beginning. And usually the launch is just another entry point into a really bumpy atmosphere. And it always feels like you're losing altitude um, because you're entering the, the Earth's surface very quickly. So um, I think if you have stamina as a strategy and you stick with it, um, your shareholders will back you. But also, you'll bring new ideas to life that if you didn't suffer, if you didn't do that re-entry 20 times, you never would have found the idea that became your blockbuster. Well, that's a really great analogy. Yeah, I love that. Now, when you're ta- when you're thinking back about all of these different projects, about all these different apps and your own entrepreneurial journey, what do you think is the one thing that you have screwed up? And I'm sure as an entrepreneur, there's lots of these examples, but what's what do you think is that one thing that you fucked up so bad that you're like, one, you learned a lot from it, right? And the other is you're not going to do that again because it could have scuttled everything you worked for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, Josh. Um, there's more than one answer, but. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> believe me. Right? I think there's several answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I would say we had a window on, on institutional interest on letters that when the, when the, really the market was there, the trends were there and the interests were there, we really in hindsight should have traded at that time with an institutional deal. And we kept kind of more, you know, just in time kind of running it on kind of a low burn And then when we were ready, when the product we felt was really like perfect, the market had moved. The market moved from, you know, messaging, investing in messaging and social networks to investing in something else. So I think from a, you know, entrepreneur lesson, you, you know, you can't control moves in the marketplace. And so if you find that you need some growth capital, to really maximize your deal, maximize the value of your company. Um, don't wait too long because the market you're in, and you know we have a couple products in the AI market right now, and you know they're trending beautifully. But I don't assume that the AI market is going to be just as hot, you know, 12 months from now. So I encourage the, you know, the the let's say the young leaders on the Patriots team with. We have a great leader who's not young. He's actually my age, but Everton Cranston. Uh, he's the CEO of a new product we have called Diversity Pop. And 
you know, in one quarter that that closed $150,000 of sales because it's such a market need for micro learning and personalized interaction on an app to grow our DEI skills that I'm now through experience encouraging Everton and our board of Patriots to really put that into the institutional market because micro learning is really strong. Uh, Diversity Pop has a great AI underpinning and Everton's a superb leader. So that that's probably the fuck up I had with letters that now we're adjusting differently on Diversity Pop. That's amazing. I appreciate that. Talk. Um, I'm really curious. Um, we bring in entrepreneurs, obviously, into this program. If you had one thing that you could go back and say, Drew, you're, you know, when you're starting your entrepreneur, your entrepreneur, I can't even talk, entrepreneurial journey, do this because it's going to set you up for success. What do you think that advice would be for, for young Drew? Um, fail fast and on your failure, if 70% of what you did on the first one didn't work, know that probably 30% of what was there does and take that 30% and put in the next idea. And the next idea, again, will probably have 70%. It doesn't work there, but the remaining 30% you have from that just gets better. And there's, there's, I think, a perspective, uh, Josh, that people try something, it doesn't work, or it doesn't get the reaction or the response they thought it would. You know, just evolve it and evolve it. And, and don't be afraid, particularly if it's a tech model, to craft the, what worked, rebrand something, and bring it to life as something new. Uh, and always, always bring your shareholders along um, because they're investing in you. They're not investing in just the idea. The idea, uh, in my case, is a multiple of ideas. And I think for all my shareholders, we hope to have a multiple of exits for them with with different uh, types of outcomes. Yeah, that's awesome. Where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? Where do you see Patriot apps? Where do you th- see the Venture Studio going in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I think Venture Studios are really well aligned with like the skill set of, of uh, veterans um, because, you know, veterans, I think, are comfortable with not making a lot for, you know, in the service. We, none of us retired from the service unless we spent, you know, obviously our career there. But we we lived within our means. And I think living within your means is a good reality for an entrepreneur. Uh, trading on trust. Uh, obviously, running your venture with integrity is, is superbly important. Uh, you know, I look at things that hyper grew, hyper flopped, and then they had to pay you know, even the founder, you know, like I'm just one example is WeWork, right? right. WeWork kept trading and trading and trading. And then they had to pay the founder a billion dollars to go away. Right. So, you know, I think for the, the venture studio, it, investors don't need to make crazy bets, but they need to believe that the founder is crazy enough to do the right thing. And those are the founders that I think are in short supply and I think veterans can fill that supply real well. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great insight. And by the way, I was at WeWork the last uh, 18 months of uh, the craziness. And it was it was interesting because 
I'd gone through Twilio's uh, IPO, so I I read that S1 and it seemed great. And then I read WeWork's S1 and I went, all right, this is going to be interesting. Uh, so it was it was two different, yeah. very different rides uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Twilio did it the right way. Good, good for them and good for you. Yeah, yeah. It was a fun ride. And uh, and so Drew, thanks so much. Where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, I'm LinkedIn, Drew Barkwitz. Uh, you know, but also if you just Google Patriops, P-A-T-R-I-A-P-P-S, Patriops, uh, we do impact SaaS. That's the category that uh, we we feel we're we're in front of and uh, would would be certainly happy to hear from any veteran entrepreneurs out there who are looking to make a difference too. Love it. Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your stories. Amazing. And um, you know, I'm definitely going to connect you on uh, with you on LinkedIn and we should we should chat after this. Uh, but thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's been fun. Enjoyed it, Cynthia and Josh. Thanks. Have a yeah. great rest of the day. Thanks. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next time. See you later. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.